before we turn to Psalm 16, I want to remind everyone about starting Sunday school back again next Sunday. So uh, it's been too long, and I'm looking forward to it. I hope, and I'm sure that you are as well. So just don't forget that uh, we will be starting Sunday school again next Sunday. So please, please try to be here at 9:30. Is when it begins. Let's turn to Psalm chapter 16. Psalm 16. Today's message is refuge in God and the Christian life. Refuge in God and the Christian life. Death has come to many in recent days. I hope that wasn't it. Yeah. And Many that we know, we, I prayed for a couple, we prayed for a couple of those people in our church family who have lost loved ones. Many of these people that have died recently have died of COVID, some to cancer, some to natural causes, and everywhere in between. Back in Alabama, where Cammie and I are from, uh, I have heard of seven deaths in the last few days of people that I know. And the older that you get, when you're, when you're younger, that doesn't seem to be something that's that really that big of a deal. It's really our parents and our grandparents that know these people, and it's not that big of a deal to us as younger people. We've got our whole lives ahead of us. But as you start to get to be my age, and then I'm sure a little bit older, you start to think about these things a whole lot more. And the people that are your parents' age start to die. And this becomes something that we must, as the people of God, must think about, because it's something that has, is coming to all people, all of humanity. Death is the most horrifying earthly ill of the fall. Earthly ill of the fall. Now, we as God's people, I want to start off on the right foot by saying that we as God's people do not live in fear of death. We don't live in fear, worry, or a concern about our death or the death of our loved ones or those things, especially if they are saved. We need a place, we have a place of refuge and peace that we can go to as the people of God, unlike the people of the world who do not know the Lord. What I'm afraid of, though, is that we as the people of God can sometimes not hold tightly to the refuge and the peace that we have in the Lord. Therefore, we begin to do things that are sinful. When we don't hold on to and we don't allow our hearts to grasp hold of the things that the Lord has given, told us about his ability to be our refuge, his ability to be our peace, what we begin to do is we begin to turn on one another. We begin to gossip. We begin to worry more about the things of the world than the things of glory. We begin to think and worry more about the things of this life and the things here rather than what will happen in the life to come. 
Today, I want us to look at having a refuge in God and how that applies to our lives from Psalm 16. So first of all this morning, those who take refuge in God have a secure refuge. A secure refuge. Now we're unsure of the particular reason that David is here writing this psalm. We don't know what the situation was behind what is going on with him in his life. But even though we don't know exactly what it was, we do know that in his life there was some type of impending danger for him. He knew that there was some problem, some issue, something that he could not handle himself. And how do we know that? It is because he speaks in the very first verse of Psalm 16, and he uses the terms of needing a refuge and needing to be preserved. David needs help. He realized that he needed help. He was not able to protect himself from whatever was about to come. But we must not think that David has lost all hope. We must not think that David has turned his back on the Lord and that he is not trusting the Lord. And how do we know that? Because if, what does David do in verse 1? He calls out to God and he says, Preserve me, O God. That's the first thing that he says. Preserve me, O God. For in you I take refuge. You see, David reveals that he has a refuge to run to in times of need. Someone that he can run to, someone that he can plead to in times of need. But we may wonder why David can run to God. Why is David able to run to this someone, this one God, and it actually be something that he can hold on to in times of need? Well, he answers that in verse 2. David says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. You see the personal pronoun there? Now, what I want us to understand is that David realizes that he possesses the Lord. The Lord is his Lord. Now, David does not possess the Lord in that the Lord has to do whatever David wants him to do. He is not at David's beck and call every moment of the day. That is not the case. What, the way that he possesses the Lord is that David himself, in his own mind and heart, has rightly attributed the true God as being the one who is the sovereign Lord of all. And not only that, not only has he attributed that to the true God, but he has also recognized that this God, this one true God is the one that he has submitted his whole entire life to. He attributes that lordship to the true God, and then he submits his own life to that lordship and to that Lord. That's why David can come to the Lord, the true God. David even goes a little further in verse 2 to explain this, and he says, I have no good apart from you. David's intention here when he says this is to make a clear distinction between the Lord and the one who is not God. The one who is God and the one who is not. David knows that the one who has the wisdom and the goodness in order to literally create him as a human being 
has the wisdom and the goodness to care for him when he needs him. God is independent of us, of any other thing other than his character and his attributes. God is sovereign over all. God is totally beyond want. Showing compassion toward God is impossible. To him, we can offer him no grace, for he needs no grace. We can't offer God mercy, for he needs no mercy. All that we can give to the Lord are things that he has owed from us, that he is rightly should be given. God needs no help. He needs no pity, and he needs no kindness. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said. Even Christ did not become incarnate and die to show kindness to God, but to exhibit to sinners the kindness of God and of His Son. God doesn't need these things. God is the one who can provide these things for people in need. David knows that God is the good one, and he is not. God, he knows that God is the powerful one, and he is not. And he knows that God is the one who he can run to for help when he can't provide it. Now, you may be thinking right there this morning, you may be thinking this is elementary. You may be thinking, well, I know this. You're not telling me anything I don't know. That may be true, but I do believe that you know just as well as I do, that our hearts are prone to wonder. We may know these things to be true, but are we allowing our hearts to hold them dear? We all must test our own hearts to know. You see, mankind in our fallen nature seeks to preserve ourselves through many other things, do we not? Sometimes we try to do it through power. Sometimes we try to preserve ourselves through fame or fortune, false humility, self-denial as a means of gain. Sometimes through warfare, sometimes through the approval of men, and sometimes following leaders of this world. But when it all comes down to it, those things will always let us down. Those things will never be able to completely secure us. Leaders rise and they fall. Nations rise and they fall. Families come and they go. But there is one. There is one place that we can run to for refuge. When your anxiety is running high, do you run to the protection of the true God? Are you confronted with the death of the loved ones and do you run to the refuge found in the Lord? I'll tell you, it is one of the most great, it's one of the greatest joys that I have ever seen is when we see someone go through terrible loss and terrible pain and yet run to the Lord. That they beg the Lord for mercy and care Let's see what David shows us about those who do take refuge in this true God. Number two, those who take refuge in God delight in God's people. Delight in God's people. 
See, David, in verses 3 and 4, he makes a very stark contrast between the people of God and the people of the world. In verse 3, he begins with a very interesting phrase. He says, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones. Now this word for saints is in the Old Testament is used to refer to God's people. It carries with it the idea of holy and commanding respect. So this is a lofty term. This being used for the people of God, for the, the people of Israel in David's day. Now even though many of these Israelites are not faithful to follow the Lord... I believe that David here is referring to those who actually have grasped hold to being God's people and are walking in faithfulness. They are the ones who have been set apart by God. And even further, he declares that they are the excellent ones in your Bible, are the majestic ones. This means that those who have been lifted up and exalted. Now, he's talking about God's people here. Is that? I mean, it's the same Israelites that we read about in the Scriptures, right? How can he be doing this? Why, why is David lifting these people up? He can't literally mean this, right? I think he is. I think he does literally mean this. It's in our Bible, isn't it? For David to use these lofty words for God's people would seem to be just a little bit overboard. They may be the chosen ones, but they sure don't act like it a lot of times. It just looks like David may be stretching the truth a little bit, that he's just taking something that we need to love God's people, but uh, not too far, not too much. David knows just as well as we do that God's people are often a sinful people, a people who do not act as we should. But then David goes on even a little further at the end of verse 3, and he says this about God's people. He says, in whom is all my delight? To delight in someone is to take great pleasure in them. So what is David doing? Is he going too far? Is he really saying too much about the Israelites, the people of God? We may argue that these people are sinful. There's no good in them. And this is the way that we should view them. This is the way that David should view the Israelites. I want you to understand today that both are true. But I want you to see what David does right here. What David is doing is he doesn't point to these people's goodness as to why he delights in them. He points to the goodness of their great God. You see, he doesn't point to these people as being good as the reason that he delights in them and that he calls them the excellent ones. He points to their great and wonderful and mighty, magnificent God because David knows he's a sinner too. Amen to that. The reason that they are the saints of God is because God delighted in setting them apart. It wasn't because they're better than others. It was because they had a great God who had delivered them. David delights in God's people because what he has in common with them is an almighty God. 
So much so that he can say, all my delight is in them. These people, the people of God, the high and lofty ones, the majestic ones, is God's testimony of his promises that are kept. God had promised that he would do this for a people, and these people are that testimony. And so these people are the excellent ones, not because of their goodness, but because of what God has done for them. David reveals the heart that we should have for God's people here in our own body, their own church, in other churches. I have been pained by the way that churches have fought during the past 10 months. I know that many pastors, and I know many pastors from Alabama that they have reached out to me in a time of terrible pain for them and their churches. They have had to deal with members who would have, that have differed on views in the church as to how they should deal with the government mandates, how, whether they should deal with masks and things of that nature. And some of you may say, well, maybe you shouldn't bring that up because that's just sort of petty. <laughs> well, if churches fight over things of this nature, it's not petty. It should be, but it's not. And churches have been ravaged from these things. What would be different about our lives, brothers and sisters, if we delighted in God's people, all of God's people in the church, as David delighted? In God's people. What would be different about our lives? How would we act and do differently if we delighted in God's people as David does? We must understand this morning that David is not doing this on his own. David is only able to call these people, the, the saints and the uh, lofty ones, the highly exalted ones. Why? Because that is what God attributes to his people. This is not the first time that God's people are called the saints. It is because God has done so himself. David isn't giving us an example that's too lofty for us. Paul even declares to us in Philippians chapter 3, verse, 20, uh, verse 3, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. I would argue that probably most of your closest friends are Christians too. We enjoy fellowship together. We laugh together. We cry together. We serve together. And many times we sacrifice in service for one another. That's what Paul was pointing out. Having humility and putting others before yourself is exactly what the Lord Jesus did for us. Therefore, that is what we are to do for one another. Praise be to God that we can. 
I want to be very clear that we cannot compromise on sin. Sin is a horrific act, usually always toward God and usually toward man as well. And we cannot compromise on those things. However, when it comes to preferences, we must lay aside our selfish desires. We should put our preferences in their right place, which is of very little value. In verse 4, David shows the result of worshiping false gods, and he denounces the idea of doing that. David says that the people who run after false gods, look at what he says here. In verse 4, he says, they will multiply their sorrows on the earth. David is most likely here referring to the unfaithful Israelites, the people who have turned to other gods, to idolatrous gods. That is who, what he's talking about here. He's warning, his warning to them is that they will not only lose whatever offerings that they give over to these false gods, but they will also be heaping up wrath before God because of their sins. And they won't even have help when time comes because these gods won't be able to help. David says, their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take the names of these false gods on his lips. David denounces everything to do with false gods and speaks of the foolishness of those who would follow after them. It's foolish to follow after idols, whether they're physical or whether they're spiritual idols, of the mind, the heart, or physical my goodness, what opposing options we have to choose between, right? <laughs> we have verse 3 or we have verse 4. The people of God are going to be one or the other. They're either going to exalt the people of God or they're going to be idolaters who follow after idols and worship them. We should seek to delight as David did in the saints of God, the people of God, because of their great God. Thirdly, those who take refuge in God have a great inheritance. We may say, well, this, is, this sounds good. Well, let's listen. Look in verses 5 and 6 with me. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now, David's use of the wording points back to the Israelites' possession of the land in Canaan. He uses the words portion and lot, referring to the land that was given to each tribe of Israel. These portions of land were cut out line by lines. And here, David says that he has received, listen, the choicest of inheritances. The pick of the inheritance. The lines have cut out for him a luscious and fertile section. So much so that David ends verse 6 by saying, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now, I may give you a term that you may not have heard before. And I, I had to go back to it myself. It's called disinheritance. Disinheritance. We need to recognize that disinheritance can be the pointer to the, to the real security that is found in God. And here's what I mean. 
disinheritance is not having what we think that we want, and it helps us to find what we really need. Not getting the inheritance or having the inheritance in the moment that we think that we want helps us to find that which we actually need. What do I mean? I'm fixing to show you. Think back to the dividing of the land in Canaan for the Israelites. When all the land was divided, there was one tribe of Israel that did not receive land as an inheritance. Do you remember which tribe that was? The tribe of Levi, the priesthood. The tribe of Levi was chosen to oversee the worship of the nation of Israel. They were responsible for the tabernacle, its implements, and they oversaw the sacrifices and offerings of the people. The overseeing of all these sacrifices and the offerings was a tremendous task. So they were provided for through their service. But it may still seem a bit unfair, right, that they didn't get any of the land. Would, would you feel a little ostracized if the others got land and you did not? Numbers 18 verse 20 helps to explain the reason for their lack of inheritance of the land, their disinheritance of any land. Listen to what it says. And the Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the peoples of Israel. You see, God wanted them to not have a portion of land so that he could point to them and say, I am really all that you need. It is true that their dependence upon their life, livelihood, was in God alone. For them not receiving an inheritance was meant to teach them about what they truly only needed was God. This was pointing to the idea that the Lord himself was their inheritance. They didn't need land. They possessed the God who created the dirt. That's why David writes, look at what he says. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. David has, had his inheritance right. He had it in the right place. We must not take refuge in a land that can be invaded and taken away, whether that be Canaan or the United States of America. No matter how much we love, we must take refuge in the certainty of the Lord himself. The Lord is our inheritance. The Lord himself, nothing more, but the Lord alone is more than we will ever need. He is more than we will ever be able to exhaust in knowledge and understanding. For it is the Lord who offered up His one and only Son on our behalf. No one else will be able to do that for me and you. And this God, this one who did that, is our inheritance. It is truly a beautiful inheritance. Number four. Those who take refuge in God seek the Lord's presence. Seek the Lord's presence. Look with me, look with me in verse 7. It begins by saying, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night also. My heart instructs me. 
Even in the midst of great trouble, David declares, I bless the Lord. You see, the Lord is his beautiful inheritance, and so he is worthy to be praised. Is that right? Is he worthy to be praised? Absolutely. And because he's our inheritance, he's even more worthy to be praised by us. That is why David can say, bless the Lord, even in impending danger. But David reveals an interesting purpose for this praise. He says that this praise is due to the Lord because of David's ability to learn from the Lord. How often do we view our opportunities to learn from the Lord as a reason to praise Him? Probably in the last uh, eight or nine months, it's actually gotten more. We probably appreciate ability to be able to come and to worship together and learn together as the people of God even more than we did beforehand. And David, he is worshiping the Lord because of that very thing. We also have an opportunity to open our Bibles every single day to learn from Him. From the human perspective, we read on in verse 7, he says, In the night also my heart instructs me. This is the picture of a person who is searching his own heart in such a way that it may drive away sleep. It is the idea of being instructed by the Lord that can only be understood, listen to this, as schooling one to face hard facts. Have you ever had to face hard facts before? Probably. Have you ever had an elder person tell you something that caused you to be somewhat bothered by the idea that they told you? And many times is something that you know that is wise and is good, and yet it bothers me some. I even had a PCA pastor who discipled me because I wasn't discipled in my own church very well. And what did he do? He, taught, he told me things I was very scared to even read the Bible about. There's a whole lot that I kept from my old church, though, that he did not sway me on. Obviously, right? Still Baptist. It may have been a hard truth that people teach us, but these things are good for us. These things are very good for us as people who need to be matured and also as Christians who need to be matured. Let's look on in verse number 8. David reveals learning cannot come without being in the presence of the Lord. It doesn't just happen to us, does it? He says, I have set the Lord always before me. David shows an intentionality to live self-consciously in the Lord's presence. Now, this obviously doesn't happen all the time for us or even for David, but we must seek to be in this way. Look at what he says. Even though life is full of hard facts, difficult circumstances, and sufferings, David is showing that he is committed to choose to place himself in the presence of God continually. No matter what it's going to cost him, he wants to put himself in the way of God to learn from Him by the means of grace that God has given him. One of the great things that David has learned and we as the people of God learn 
by being and placing ourselves in the presence of God is that this produces a stability throughout our life. That when we do go through things that are difficult, that we still have a foundation, we still have something that's secure in God. For David says at the end of verse 8, he says, Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Is it not true for us that when we are in the presence of God, we are more confident in our decisions and in our future? When we're not, we're more worried and concerned about our future. There is great guidance in the counsel that the Lord provides, and there is great stability in choosing to be in the presence of the Lord. For you and me, we must be a people who are committed to learning from Him and praising Him for these wonderful opportunities. Lastly, this morning, number five, those who take refuge in God have the hope of joy forever. Have the hope of joy forever. In verses 9 through 11, it reveals that great joy is found in the Lord. David doesn't look at this as though he has to go through these things, that suffering is probably coming, and yet he has a refuge, and then that's it. No, David realizes that there is joy in the Lord. Verse 9 begins, and he says, Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. David reveals that no matter what situations he might face, he will continue to trust the Lord, and he will be joyful in that. For he has committed to set the Lord always before him. And because of this, he has joy. But David follows this up with something interesting. He says, listen, listen here. My flesh also dwells secure. My flesh also dwells secure. Now this makes one think of always being delivered from one's enemies in that day and age of David, right? It makes, it makes someone think that they shall not even see death. But we know that David died. How can this be? Then he goes on to add to this in verse number 10 by saying, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. This goes right along with the idea David was just speaking of when his flesh dwelt secure. Sheol is the place of the dead, or what we would call the underworld. This is not the place where disembodied spirits go, but the place where the body goes to rot and to decay. A place where the body would see corruption, as he says here. But here in verse 10, it seems as though David thinks that God will keep this terrifying reality of going to the place of the dead far from him. It really doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? We know David died. Is this a false hope that David has in the Lord? How in the world could David say such a thing about himself? It is because primarily, first and foremost, David is not saying this about himself. David is saying this about someone who will raise from the dead. In the book of Acts, chapter 2, if you want to turn there, 
you're welcome to. Acts chapter 2, we read Peter's famous sermon on the day of Pentecost. And he tells them about Jesus, the Christ, and accuses these people who, are, who he's preaching to of, of being the ones who actually put Jesus to death. And then Peter says in verse number 25 of Acts chapter 2, For David says concerning him, he's speaking about Jesus, and then he quotes Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. Let me say that again. In verse number 25 of Acts chapter 2, uh, Peter says, For David says concerning Jesus, and then he quotes Psalm 16, 8 through 11. David is writing about the Christ, the one who will not see his body stay in Sheol. But I want us to focus on what Peter says after he quotes Psalm 16. In verse number 29, we read what Peter says. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So David is dead. This is what Peter's saying. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. You see what Peter says? He declares that David was speaking of the Christ and not only speaking of the Christ, but speaking of the resurrection of the Christ in Psalm 16. That he will not see Sheol. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Not only this, but Peter tells us that David literally was able to foresee the resurrection of the Christ. Peter doesn't stop there. He goes on in verse number 32 and he says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Do you see what Peter is doing there with these people on that day? He is declaring and saying that that which that David had been told by God, that there would be one who would sit on the throne of his throne forever, one of his descendants, who would not see Sheol, would not stay there. No. He's speaking of the day that that would happen, and then Peter is there, and he's saying, I've seen him. Not only did God say it would happen and David was declaring it, but I have literally seen him and I've seen him and he went and he's sitting at the right hand of the Father today. I've seen him with my own eyes. So this is why David, this is why David is able to speak of this even about himself in Psalm 16. Why? Because since Jesus was raised from the dead, he too has hope of resurrection from the dead. The death will not keep him either. In the midst of life's difficulties, we do not have to fear death as the people of God. We know that death comes but for the people of God, we know that death is not the end. Look back with me in Psalm 16, 11 as we close. 
David says, you make known to me the path of life. What David is getting to here is the life guidance the Lord gives him in the way of the good and right path. You see, God's direction is never wrong. The path that he places us on is never wrong. It may be difficult, but it is always right for us. It is always the best for us. But we often question that. And what David is showing us is that to walk in this path is to live already. You see, we don't, we don't one day receive eternal life. Once we are born again, we will never die. Our bodies will, but eternal life has begun at the time of the new birth. And what David is saying here in verse number 11, he's saying walking in the ways of the Lord now will produce life-giving path for our lives today. Why is this path so important? Well, David makes very clear that this path of God's presence leads into eternity. He goes on at the end of verse 11, and he says, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Death of loved ones may come, and our own death is impending at some point, but there is no need for fear for the people of God. There's no reason to pack up and just wait on the day. You see, God has given us a responsibility to live our lives walking with Him in faith and hope. And there's a day we live in joy because God has given us that, because our inheritance is in Him. For if we find our refuge in the death the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the greatest of all inheritances, just as David did. The presence of God Himself is our inheritance. And it is one of great joy. Now let us walk in that path today. Stephen, are you gonna are you gonna come up and sing a last song? Okay. Okay. So as we as we close today, if you will, please, we need to clear this side of the uh, chairs and put them in the back. And before we leave, I would like to read Psalm sixteen, verse eleven. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Go in the peace of the Lord.